0: Good evening. Uh, Good to see you all. If you've never met me before, like Chris just said, my name is Brandon. I've been coming to St. Peter's for a little over a year. You probably know my wife Alice, who works for the church. Um, And like Chris said, over the last few weeks, we've been in a talk series based on the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro uh, and kicked us off by talking about what is beneath the surface. Jill then talked about why we must go back and process past experiences in order to go forward and build emotional and spiritual maturity. And then last week, Chris talked about the importance of rest. This evening, uh, I want to talk about brokenness and vulnerability, so what a breeze. Um, as you've probably guessed, and as was mentioned earlier, I am not British. I grew up in the States in Louisiana, and other than Tabasco sauce and Mardi Gras, and Some of the deep-seated issues belonging to the american south the thing my home state is most known for is insane tropical weather and i just want to pause and say i did write this talk before friday and that weird storm so i am sorry don't blame me Um, usually in louisiana there's one or two hurricanes which hit every year and most of the time they are relatively mild Uh, but in the fall of 2005 I remember watching the news as the local weather presenter was particularly anxious about an approaching storm, and it was especially concerning because all that had been on the news the previous few weeks was the devastation and continued chaos and humanitarian crisis in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, a city just three hours south where I lived. So you may not know this, but Katrina was not the only storm that hit Louisiana that year, nor was it the strongest. A few weeks after Katrina made landfall, Rita hit. And while Katrina destroyed the state's largest city, Rita was poised to destroy what was left of the state. And as the storm approached, the sky got darker and darker. Plywood panels started appearing on the windows of storefronts, businesses, and people's homes. Grocery stores were emptied, household backup generators were dusted off, and some people started driving north, leaving behind homes and pets. When the storm finally did hit, power was instantly lost. Tornadoes ripped through the surrounding countryside, and the only way my family could keep up with the news was the shortwave radio in the kitchen. In the days that followed, I remember going with my dad to the gas station to get gas for our little generator, and we drove past fallen power line after fallen power line, abandoned cars, houses that had been cleaved in two by falling trees, And when we finally got to the gas station, we found no gas. (laughs) Just hundreds of people lined up, not knowing what else to do. And in that specific moment, in light of all the chaos that i had seen around me and on the news, I remember looking around and noticing how anxious everybody looked in their cars. And to my 13-year-old eyes, the world as I knew it had ended. It was all out of control. And given the past two years, you've probably already noticed some similarities with my experience of that particular hurricane and the pandemic. Whether it's personal encounters with death, a general feeling that society is lost, or sudden epiphany that no one is actually in control. And then combined with other pandemic-like issues like climate change, racism, international tensions, poverty, the list could go on, life can feel like one storm after another, can't it? The world, is broken, our world has experienced extreme trauma. Psychologists define trauma as an event outside of the normal human experience. And I think it's fair to say that all of us have experienced some form of trauma recently. Bessel van der Kolk is a leading psychiatrist, clinical researcher, and author who has spent most of his life working with combat veterans suffering from crippling PTSD. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he explains that in response to trauma, the human brain tries its best to make sense of the experience to put it in some form of a narrative. But in cases of severe trauma, like his PTSD patients, it can't. And so the sufferers are effectively stuck, reliving the memory and emotion every waking moment. What was once a collective experience, in their case, war, and in our case, a global pandemic, has been transmitted into an individual condition. And then taking a step back, van der Kolk goes on to explain how this phenomenon of PTSD actually affects far more than just combat veterans. Interestingly, he explores that any trauma of any magnitude, if not correctly processed, um, is held in our bodies and causes us to experience the trauma elsewhere, as if it's coming out sideways. Emotional distress, anxiety, depression, numbness, manipulation of others, control, bitterness, medical conditions, and even physical sickness can leave its mark. And the truth is that all of us have come into contact with experiences that have left us being affected in a way we feel like we can't control and can't explain. So my question to you and us this evening is when you experience these things, what do you do? Who do you go to? if and when we think about these experiences and emotions in light of Jesus or the Bible, we may think that neither really have much to say on the subject. At best, we think or have experienced that religion doesn't really offer much help. And at worst, church may have been the actual source of pain in the first place. But I would like to encourage us, There are actually many places where brokenness is explored in the Bible and arguably every page contains at least some echo of human brokenness. But tonight, I'd like us to look at one specific story. This is Mark chapter five, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Classic disciples. Uh, But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Jairus, do not be afraid, just believe. which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, there's a lot here that Mark wants us to notice, some of it we don't have time for, but I want to start by trying to help us understand what actually is going on in the story. And to start, let's look at the characters. There are four of them, including Jesus, there's Jairus, the synagogue leader, as he keeps being mentioned. Uh, And this means that he is a very well-respected and honored member in Jewish society. There's his daughter, who is acutely ill and on the verge of death. And finally, we have the woman with the bleeding condition, who, if you think about it, is the most random character in the entire story. I say that because if I was writing the story, I would be tempted just to leave her out. My version would go. Jairus asked Jesus to heal his daughter. She died before he got there, but he miraculously raised her from the dead. How amazing. Uh, It'd still be a good story. So why does Mark and Luke, because he he recounts the same story in his gospel, complicate the plot with this woman with the bleeding condition? I think there's two reasons. Firstly, let's think about the woman. After 12 years of suffering, the same age as Jairus' daughter, no less, and subsequent malpractice by various doctors, she has spent all the money that she has, and she's only gotten worse. And perhaps something that wouldn't be immediately obvious to us is that this condition would have caused her to be completely rejected by society, because in Jewish law, she would be ceremonially unclean because of this condition, and unable to participate in Jewish public life. And yet, despite the social expectation, the woman chooses to show up and look for Jesus, to try as hard as she can to reach out for his cloak. She's determined, she's desperate. She has a one-track mind. And this is crucial to the story because in her desperation, she seeks Jesus. And in response, Jesus pursues her. He doesn't just shout over the crowd when he feels her touch, saying, whoever touched me, bless you, but I'm in a hurry. (laughs) He looks for her until she is found, and he acknowledges her. He has time for her and he elevates her to a position of status in front of the whole crowd. He looks in her eyes and says, daughter, your faith in me has healed you. And this is the second point. Jesus didn't overlook her like society did. And I think this reveals to us what God is actually saying tonight. I think that God is saying that he does not overlook you. He does not overlook your pain and your suffering, even if they are chronic things. He has been and will continue to look for you until you are found, so that he can look you in the face and say, my son, my daughter, your faith in me has healed you. And for this reason, I think that this woman is actually a powerful example for us. Her pursuit of Jesus gives us a template for what we must do in the face of our pain. We must go to Jesus. In fact, this is exemplified a second time as the story continues, when, J- when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from death, even when Jesus is surrounded by people with no faith who are laughing at him. In these two moments, through his actions and through his healing, Jesus is declaring that there is no chronic thing that escapes my gaze, and there is no acute suffering that escapes my power. Just before I continue, I do want to pause and mention a couple of disclaimers. Firstly, people have different magnitudes of pain. And that means that each of us will have different levels of processing and healing to undergo. And I just want to acknowledge that and to emphasize that I'm not making light of what you may have experienced. However, it is true that no amount of pain is too much for Jesus. He is inviting each of us to draw close to Him. And secondly, not everyone is miraculously healed. And honestly, there's no definitive answer explaining why some people are and some people aren't. And there are a lot of hurtful perspectives out there on the subject. And as someone who grew up in the Bible Belt being told that my suffering was a result of me not being good enough, can I just stress how flawed the logic is? Because you never find Jesus leaving people in their sickness because he thinks they deserve it or need to be taught a lesson. As a theological aside, the truth is that what you see Jesus doing in the Bible is ushering in the kingdom, as he calls it, meaning the fulfillment of God's will on earth. But while Jesus started to usher in this fulfillment into our world, it's not fully here yet because he has yet to return. This is what Christians mean when they say the now and the not yet, the kingdom, if you've ever heard that phrase before. But theological expositions aside, regardless of whether the healing is instantaneous or not, the answer is and will always be, Go to Jesus. A few years ago, I found myself on a church weekend away at our old church in Los Angeles. It was a weekend with talks and worship, but primarily, it had lots of opportunity for prayer and to experience the Holy Spirit. And honestly, I came to this weekend full of skepticism. Uh, but I went along anyway, partly because my friend kept persuading me to go, partly because there was an attractive girl going, uh, but most importantly because I really didn't believe that God loved me. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I had been a Christian all my life, grew up, grew up in the Bible Belt, uh, but despite doing what I thought were all the right things, I felt like at best God tolerated my existence. So during Saturday evening on this weekend away when people were being prayed for, I was really brave and vulnerable and stood up and asked to be prayed for too. I'd never been prayed for in this way and I remember eyes closed, waiting, hearing other people in the room sobbing and experiencing powerful things. And they were also receiving prayer from the vicar who was walking around. But afterwards, what did I feel? Angry. (laughs) Angry because I didn't experience anything. And afterwards, the vicar, Ed, came over to me, knowing my skepticism, asked me how I'd found it. Uh, And if you don't know me really well, you probably think that I'm very mild-mannered, which I am but I do have a very stubborn streak in me. (laughs) And so when he asked me how I felt, I said to his face that I hated it and thought it was stupid. (laughs) He very kindly told me to try again at the last session Sunday morning, but I was not so sure. Um, So the next morning I woke up filled with rage. Uh, I took out my emotions in the usual way. I went for a run. Only in my anger, I forgot that the weekend away was actually held on the side of a mountain and we were about a mile above sea level. So after a few paces, I was panting for breath. And on the side of the road at 6 a.m. in this stupid mountain town where we were staying, I broke down in tears while gasping for breath. I told God how mad I was at him for overlooking me. And in that moment, I heard God say, Brandon, I see you. I have always seen you. I love you. After a while, I picked myself up and hobbled back to the hotel, and I found the subsequent prayer time extremely powerful. And honestly, I do not think it's an overstatement to say that my life has changed ever since. My lesson from that story is that when I finally allowed myself to actually open up to God, to actually communicate to Him that I felt rejected, overlooked, and abandoned by Him, not good enough, in that moment of vulnerability, I finally opened up enough so that I could hear what God was saying to me all along. The subsequent prayer time was nice, but it was not the moment that changed my life. That moment was when I was on the side of the road crying because for the first time I felt like God loved me. And returning to the Bible, we can see the reason as to why we can actually go to Jesus with all of our emotions. And it's because he understands what it means to be fully broken. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was about to be betrayed and crucified, Jesus goes to his friends, the same disciples who were with him, and saw him raise the little girl from the dead. And he asked them to stay up and pray with him. And instead, they went to sleep. All alone, Jesus cried out to God and asks if he could avoid dying on the cross, and God doesn't answer him. In fact, Jesus asks three times for the cup to be passed, and I bet we've all asked for something multiple times and feel like it hasn't been heard. But as he's dying on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I wanted to say that story because I want to show us that God is not immune to our brokenness and suffering. He's experienced it firsthand. He knows exactly what you're going through. In fact, another theological aside, God the Father experienced what Jesus was going through because, like Jesus said over and over in the Gospels, I and the Father are one. So in that moment of desperation and death, God the Father experienced the same separation that Jesus expressed while he was dying on the cross, and all the sin of the world was poured out on him. But like Jesus, the best part, the hopeful part, is the resurrection life that was to come and which is on offer for us, because we believe that he still hasn't abandoned us. Even in 2022, with all the crazy, insane things that have happened recently in society and in our individual lives, God is still with us. So, in light of knowing that Jesus is the only person we can take our brokenness to, what would it look like if we did? What would it look like to be whole? What would it look like, like the woman, to stop bleeding? What would it look like if you went to Jesus with your brokenness? If you told Jesus all of your emotions? If you told him how angry, sad, and hurt you were by what had happened to you? And how angry you are with him? What if instead of trying to numb your pain, you took it to him? And given what we've read and discussed, let me tell you what I think it would look like. I think he'd sit down with you, look you in the eyes, smile, tell you how much He loves you, and ask where it hurts. He deeply cares. He wouldn't dismiss your pain or tell you to get over it, or tell you that it's your fault or the result of your sin. He wouldn't say that you deserve it. He'd say, that is why I died, to take on the suffering, your suffering, your sin, your brokenness, societies, and to give you my life in exchange, a life of freedom, wholeness, joy, peace, power, and hope. But the truth is, to take what he has and what he's offering to us, we need to give up what we're holding, as then we need to allow him into our pain and our own brokenness. And so we need to engage with it instead of numbing ourselves or running away from it. Then we need to take it to Jesus instead of going to other things, because he is the only one who can actually help us, because he is the only one who has experienced complete brokenness on the cross. And I'm not for one second saying that it's easy or comfortable, but I am saying that like the woman with the bleeding issue and Jairus the synagogue leader, the only place that you or I will experience healing and freedom is at the feet of Jesus. I'd like to end tonight with some verses and really, this is what God is saying to us tonight. So think of them not as Bible memory verses, if you're like me and grew up in the church, but think of them as the very words that God, your friend, is saying just to you. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Jeremiah 23.23, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples, John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world.